The following is a series of short recordings that I recorded in conversation with my friends, uh, the usual suspects, um, Mitch, Jason, Luke J, and Luke Thompson, um, on the Signal app um, on the topics of Christology and the Trinity. Um, and also, um, uh, to a lesser extent, uh, Kabbalah or Kabbalah, um, although my understanding of that topic is, is extremely superficial. Um, nonetheless, um, you know, what started as just a, a sort of Im impromptu message that I wanted to share with my friends turned into a little lecture that um, afterward I thought would uh, serve as an interesting and provocative uh, standalone episode um, all its own. Um, so that's what I'm doing with those recordings now. Um, the subject matter becomes pretty clear when you listen to it, but it's it's otherwise kind of hard to uh, co condense down and, and, and boil down to, to a single point. The production is rough, even by the standards of this podcast, and that, that's, again, partly to do uh, with the fact that I wasn't originally planning to release it on any kind of wider platform. So um, as usual, I'm asking your indulgence for that. And hopefully um, you will get something out of this. Even if you're, if you, even if you don't agree with the conclusions that I re reach in this episode, and you know, I'm not even sure that I do. And hopefully you will find what I have to say here stimulating. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to, um, play the the recordings okay this morning's reflection um is going to be difficult um really running on an empty tank um uh, in terms of sleep deprivation right now but i had some very clear thoughts this morning um that i'm trying to like earlier this morning that i'm trying to gather and recover now um, to talk about what, what I sense as a kind of Christian Kabbalah, Christian Kabbalism. I really first had this sense listening to John Milton, um, and his appearance on David Artman's Grace Saves All podcast, where he talks about monotheism is the true monism, and that to understand this is to understand the necessity whereby um, humanity is not only always originally divine, but but God is is always originally human in some sense. <clears throat> um, you know, both the sense of each is qualified, but but nonetheless there, and um, and he said that. To know this is to know that there's that the spirit which pervades it all is a person, and um, you know that was very arresting, because it took my mind to something which I only intuited at first, um, but that I I thought that in Kabbalah they they is probably this understanding of God as a man, and when I told that to Jacob and Yosef they were like well that's the exact wrong understanding of Kabbalah but. What I mean is something they didn't tell me, but which I found found out later, 
you know, there's a lot of like, a lot of the mysticism has to do with things like measuring the size of God's beard, his arms, his face. He ends up kind of, if you take, if you take the measurements, he ends up looking like this kind of strange homunculus, but it's like a spiritual exercise. It's like the new Jerusalem. It's something, it's something symbolic, but, but the point is it, it's an Adam Kadmon. It's like a celestial Adam. And, you know, I mean, this is, this is entirely correct as as far as as far as I can tell, as in just amateur theologian trying to make sense of it all. So now I'm going to try to find a way into it to make it more more clear. Um, the the Hecalope mysticism again, not that I know anything about Kabbalah, but it's just stuff I've seen from YouTube channels. Specifically, I think most most of it comes from um, Justin Sledge. Dr. Sledge, in any case, I don't remember the first name, his YouTube channel on Kabbalah and associated mysticism. Very cool, very interesting. Um, he's a bit of a cynic materialist guy, but um, his his profound interest in Judaism belies his professed um, uh, materialism, I suspect, um, at least on a sort of moral level. But anyway, I'm see, I'm rambling. Um, the, the, the Hecalote mysticism, it, it has to do with temples. Hecalote, I think is the plural of temple and it has to do with quote unquote descending, but really ascending, but they're too pious to really say that that's what they're doing. Similar to how in Job, Job, um, he blesses God and actually maybe that's really what he does. But or rather, but rather, excuse me, his wife tells him to bless God and die. But it's not clear that she really meant bless God and die. It, it might be a euphemism for curse God and, and die. So similarly, in the Hecalote mysticism, they quote unquote descend into um, the temples, and the the temples um, are a kind of mind space. They're kind of metaphysical. It's what Christopher Langan would call the, the non-terminal domain or what I, in my <laughs> sort of uh, somewhat somewhat silly, but nonetheless in, in, in strange, but nonetheless insistent way, um, what I call the less terminal domain. In other words, my view is that you already are in eternity. The only thing that changes is the depth. Um, so in other words, for me, this earthly reality is already the so-called non-terminal domain. And I'll talk more about that later to no one, cause no one will be interested. Um, now, <clears throat> so talking about this Hecalote mysticism, you descend into the temples. It's a mind space that has been refined through, um, through continued efforts sort of, oh man, this is so interesting because it's like McKenna and, and psychedelics where the drug is like, do you take the drug or does the drug take you? The idea is that the range of psychedelic experiences is colored and informed by the sensibility of, of all who have taken the drug. So it, and this gets so much into what Langan describes as the mutual containment of state by syntax or of patterns by their instances and vice versa. And I'll get more into that because that's extremely relevant to um, the overall point I'm I'm driving at here. I'm going to take a little break. I already managed to say nothing, which is a good start, but this is part one. Okay, take a little sip of tea to fortify myself and try to wake up.
Um, um, now, anyway, so so you you, you the the um, the meditators in this sort of kabbalistic mystical Jewish tradition, they they descend into the palaces, and there they, you know, through a sort of collective in agreement, almost, but but it's really more like an unraveling, of 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 the of 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 the phenomenon. Um, uh, a sort of collective unraveling of the phenomenon um, where they they learn the passwords to get by various guardians and they understand that certain rooms have certain dangers associated with them and that there's one room in particular where everyone has sort of agreed that um, there is um, there is a not a fountain it's a pool. It's a pool of water. It looks like marble. That room is like especially dangerous for some reason. When you get there, you're not supposed to like become transfixed by the water slash marble. Anyway, but it's like when, when the, the especially adept meditators go all the way into the throne room, there are three who are said to have entered the throne room. Um, one, I think, was supposed to have gone mad. The other... Um, is I think Elisha Ben Abuya. He's supposed to have been um, a heretic, uh, based on what he reported there. And then there's Rabbi Akiva, um, who I think lived a little after Jesus uh, historically, because uh, one doesn't quite know if if you know any of the the reported findings of the Hecalot meditations are historical. Whether whether Rabbi Akiva really said he did this, or at least I'm not sure. Um, but but the the sort of legend has it that Rabbi Akiva entered the throne room and left with his orthodoxy and his sanity intact, but he was the only one to do so. Um, the one who went mad, it's like I guess no one really got anything interesting out of him. But the the one um, who became a heretic is the one whom I want to talk about, Elisha Ben Abuya, the the the. Aher or the Asher, whatever that word is, it means the other. He is othered. He is anathematized as a result of what he claims to have seen. And I think other other things he's reported to have said and done. Um, he's sort of like a kind of chaotic figure. Um, uh, um, in, in many ways, from what I understand, um, um, El Elisha Ben Abuya enters the throne room and in the throne room, from what I understand, there's no forward or backward, there's no left or right, um, or there's not supposed to be. Um, and then there's a throne, and the throne is supposed to be empty. But when Elisha Ben Abuya enters the throne room, he sees that the throne is not empty, that there's a youth seated um, on, the, on the throne. And that, that youth is sort of understood as the Metatron, which is the angel of the Lord, really. Um, and it's sort of it's part of the, the, the strand of Binitarian thinking that, that got canceled uh, you know, prior to the development of Jewish orthodoxy in an analogous way um, to the, um, the Arian heresies, you know, for example, and associated heresies in Nestorianism, et cetera, getting canceled before the, the development or you know, coinciding with the development of um, uh, triune orthodoxy, or Trinitarian orthodoxy. So... Um, there, there's, there's a youth seated, um, on the throne that should be empty. 
Um, I don't know if the Jewish Benetarians conceived the relationship between the so-called Yahweh Gadol and the Yahweh Katan, that is the greater Yahweh and the, the, the little Yahweh. I don't know if they conceived that as a father-son dynamic. I think that's Christian language, but there was the greater lesser dynamic. And that, that, that throne was supposed to be empty, but it was inhabited by a, a youth. So, you know, if you were to represent, which you're not, I guess it is a tension, like you're not supposed to, but like if you were to represent the greater Yahweh, as someone, you would represent him as an ancient, like the ancient of days. Um, but on the youth, I mean, on the throne is is a youth, and that that youth is sort of the lesser Yahweh. And I mean, one imagines that Elisha ben Abuya may have bent the knee and worshipped that youth in a way that is like, shall we say, idolatrous or or heterodox. Um, and so that's 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 part of it. That's part of it right right there. It's it's um it's what I was talking about to Jason, a certain fractality that exists in Christianity. In Revelation, um you know, see what we know from the what we know, you know, Christian Orthodoxy to be, um sort of pre Revelation or, you know, prior to the the full acceptance of Revelation as canon, um, is that Jesus um ascends Jesus, you know, he he lives, dies, is resurrected. He ascends to the right hand of the Father, uh, where he will wait uh, until he comes to judge the living and the dead. Um. um in Revelation, uh, there's a great white throne judgment. It is strongly hinted that Jesus is the one who sits on that throne. Jesus also says to the one who conquers. Um, I will give the right to sit at my right hand. So now it's as if Jesus, see, there's a way in which when Jesus goes back to the Father, cling not to me, I have not yet been to the Father. Um, uh, it's as if he ceases to be the localized form of the of the omnipresent formless one. He becomes Christ everywhere, Christ in everything he disappears up into, into formlessness and, and omnipresence. Um, and then we enter the, the mediating role that was previously Christ's in this, in this fractal way. Um, let's see. There we go. I got it to stay locked. Um, I, I, now I'm going to try to talk about, um, I'm going to try to talk about um, the the way that Sam broke down um, oneness Pentecostalism to me because I asked him what oneness Pentecostalism is, and he said, "Here's how it works: uh, Unitarianism says Jesus is not God, um, Trinitarianism says Jesus is God, oneness Pentecostalism says God is Jesus." Now integrate that integrate that with um, what Christopher Langan says about. At the level of ultimate reality, essentially every reduction has to be reciprocal. What does that mean? That, 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 again, getting into the mutual containment of state by s syntax, or in other words, the mutual definition of patterns and their instances. In other words, just as instances are defined by the patterns they instantiate, so patterns are actually defined by their instances. Um, uh, now, um, 
and that that has to be so at the level of ultimate reality. So in other words, it's like so the schoolmen used to debate over which has primacy, uh, uh, philosophically speaking. Um, uh, is it the universals or the particulars? The idea that, that particulars have primary reality was called nominalism. The idea that universals have uh, primary reality was universalism in that sense, where really it's like Platonism. And then, and then there's a sort of the Chris Langan answer to that question, which, as I understand it, is basically there's no scholarship on Langan, but this is my understanding of what he's saying, saying that instances, I mean, patterns reduced to their instances, a la nominalism, but instances when you turn to those and ask what those are, they reduce to their patterns. There's no what what there's none of what Duns Scotus would call hexiety or essential concrete thisness to a thing. A thing, in, even in its particularity, decomposes into abstract patterns. Um, <clears throat> and I've talked about that on different in different places. I talked about that with Sam, or I talked about that with Wayne uh, most recently, and I thought I kind of brought that out relatively well. Um, <clears throat> and um, okay, so it's 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 a mutual reduction. It's almost like if you had two cups of water. And, 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 but only one of them was filled and you poured the, the liquid back and forth between them without any loss. Um, this is a kind of dynamic mutual self-containment. You ask what, what instances are, you must make reference to patterns. You ask what patterns are, you must make reference to instances. To say that patterns are their instances is just to, is just to honestly describe what you're doing. Like analytically, this is the operation. This is what I'm doing when I'm defining what patterns are. I'm, I'm turning to their instances and making, and making inescapable reference to them, and in that way, I'm reducing the patterns to their instances. So, what does this have to do with uh, the, the, the greater Yahweh and the lesser Yahweh, the Father and the Son? Um, what this has to do with is again going back to Sam's formulation of. Um, uh, uh, you have Trinitarianism, Jesus is God. You have oneness Pentecostalism, God is God is Jesus. And I would say that at the level of ultimate reality, both of these statements, they have to be true. Here's, oh, lock it, there we go. Here's another way into it. God is love. Um, we're, we're asking about capital G God, ha theos, ha theos agape estin. Um, God is love. Um, what is love? Can you understand love without reference to its instances? Is love purely abstract? Or is it also um, all of its instantiations and the relationship, crucially, between the abstract and the particular? Um, is, is love actually the, the giver, um, the recipient, and the gift? I'm going to go with the latter. So you ask... What is God? What sort of God is God is love, but but can can? It's like you ask, what is that? You're going to go to the particular. You're going to go to the instances. In other words, when you ask, what is Yahweh Gadol? What is the greater Yahweh? You're going to find the lesser Yahweh. And when you ask, who is who are you? It's like Rabbi, you're. Who do you say I am? It's like Rabbi, you're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. You ask, who is the lesser Yahweh? You're going to find the greater Yahweh. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's how it goes. That's the kind of loss, lossless two-way, 
Uh, thus the lossless pouring back and forth of the liquid between the two cups. This is mutual containment of state and syntax at the level of ultimate reality to borrow Langanian language. Um, I, I, and and um, to me, this kind of creates like a kind of, yeah, like Christian Kabbalism that, 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 that says with the oneness Pentecostals that God is Jesus. Um, and I think that's really weirdly the message of Revelation as well. Revelation, the, the book of Revelation. Well, you know, I, and I would also probably, you know, interpret the whole of Revelation as saying that too. So anyway, that was like my little weird, weird talk on so-called Christian Kabbalism, or I don't know what you would call it. Um, um, but that's what I was thinking on this morning. I did a half-decent job of reconstructing it just now, I think. Um, another way to see this um, is to effectively ask of the Godhead. <laughs> you know, because like, let's, let's, you know, it's wrong to say uh, that the, 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 the Father, Son, and the Spirit compose the Godhead. But when you, when you say that there's one, there's one being, there's three persons and one being, one is sort of tempted to ask with Sam Adams whether that, whether that being is a person, <laughs> which you're not supposed to answer that. But, but I think that I do answer that. And I say it is a person and that person is Jesus. And that's what the oneness Pentecostals mean when they say God is Jesus. And I think that's what I'm trying to, I'm trying to bring out the radicality of this statement. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, you know, maybe, and in so doing, I'm sort of exposing myself to heresy uh, in the classic fashion of uh, Elisha ben Abuya. Jesus is both the Trinity and a member of the Trinity. Again, like it's like it's almost crazy, but but like, what what the logic behind that is is that and and any any putatively ultimate reality, um, uh, it has nothing except itself, um, in in terms of which to give itself. Okay. Um, uh, so in other words, ordinarily you're not supposed to use a, a word to define a word, but um. Um, reality is defined in terms of reality. Um, and, and I see this dynamic in other places where, say, the infinite is not simply, or excuse me, the infinite is the interplay of the infinite and the finite. So you say, define the infinite. And I say, the, in, the infinite is the interplay between the in, of, of the infinite and the finite. So I use the word to define a word, and in, so, and in some sense I offer no um, no definition. It's it's obscurum per obscurius. It's it's the unknown by means of the unknown, um, or eternity. Eternity is the relationship between time or be, between time and eternity. That's my definition of eternity. Um, and again, it's the same thing. But but using the word to define a word is not a fallacy where ultimate reality is concerned, but is rather obligatory. This is something else I think I learned from Langan, the sort of almost mathematical, meta-mathematical, as he calls it, logic of ultimate reality and its, and its inherent constraints.